to transcend means we have to recognize who we are, how we got here, what we're doing, what we need, what the path ahead looks like, and kind of own all that. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute, in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, asking them all our one question in the midst of all that seems to be going awry, what could possibly go right? Uh, and today's guest is Nate Hagens. Nate is a well-known speaker on the big picture issues facing human society and currently teaches a systems honors course at the University of Minnesota called Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament. He has appeared on PBS, BBC, ABC, and NPR, and has lectured around the world. He was a lead editor of The Oil Drum, one of the most popular and respected websites for analysis and discussion of global energy supplies and the future implications of the upcoming energy transition. He holds a master's degree in finance with honors from the University of Chicago and a PhD in natural resources from the University of Vermont. Previously, Nate was the president of Sanctuary Asset Management and a vice president at the investment firms Solomon Brothers and Lehman Brothers. So I invited Nate to join us here for an episode of What Could Possibly Go Right because of the huge scope of his thought and his clear-eyed, sustained gaze on the energy transition away from fossil fuels we are in the middle of. And now here's Nate. Welcome, Nate Hagens, to What Could Possibly Go Right. Uh, I know you know we are not asking for prescriptions or analyses, which you have a plenty, I'm sure, but for what your eye trained for decades on the horizon of overshoot and collapse now sees as the unravelings are upon us. Um, you and I and millions of others have worked to avert these, but here they are. So techno-optimists are offering us breakthroughs, collapsologists are offering us a dark mirror, but you and I both try to metabolize reality and offer pattern recognition guidance for people to pay attention, who pay attention to us. And, and so you have your readers and your students, and I have the people who've read Your Money, Your Life, my blog, and... Um, and so we're sort of listening posts. We're, we're, we're sending out signals, but we're also getting signals back. And so one way our conversation could go, um, and it can go anywhere you want, would be like, what are you hearing from the young people that you're interacting with uh, about where they're heading, where, where they see those openings on the horizon? What do you see? Where do you see their enthusiasm rising uh, along with, you know, the sort of the dread feeling of what we're into? What are the trails that they are offering us, their somewhat elders and teachers? What are they showing us? Because they, the, the youth are really the visionaries of our moment. So. Hi, Vicki. Happy to be here. Um, yes, that is a deep and important question. And of course, with all these questions, uh, there are caveats. Let me start with this. Your, your podcast or your conversation is called What Could Possibly Go Right? And implied in that are two assumptions. Number one, that um, people's priors are the same. Their expectations of the future are the same because 
what could go right or what could go wrong isn't an absolute. It's relative relative to what one expects. So if I said that 500 years from now, there would be 500 million humans alive, um, we would still have fully deeply oxygenated oceans and that people would be ecologically literate and climate had been limited to one and a half degrees Celsius and then retreated. I would say that would be incredibly right, kind of irrespective of what happens this century. The other assumption is, is what could possibly go right depends on what you care about. And some people have much wider boundaries of, of empathy and concern uh, and even ethics on how they would answer that question. Um, so getting back to your question, I would say that my students, there's 263 of them so far, and I'm not teaching right now, um, but I did have 263 students who self-selected to take a class called Reality 101, a survey of the human predicament. So they were already self-selected to have wider boundary analysis and empathy. Um, I would say that like most young people, they are a little bit frozen and shell-shocked by what's happening. Um, even the last semester I taught was 2019 and uh, in the fall. And at that point, there were 30 to 35% of the students at the University of Minnesota were on some sort of uh, anti-psychotic, anti-depression, anti-anxiety medications. <clears throat> and I, I was told by the guidance counselor that that's pretty similar the country uh, over. That was before COVID, before Ukraine and Russia, before other things. So mental health is a serious issue with our youth and our population. And I think one of the big takeaways that my students had is I think I taught them things about the future, about energy and growth uh, and using less and the bottlenecks of the 21st century, that they learned more scary things than they expected, but it was the knowing of them uh, it was the recognition and the acknowledgement and the sharing of the understanding of that path with others their own age that they actually felt more exhilarated and more positive about the future than had it just not been explained to them. So when you ask me, what do I think the youth are thinking? I I think it's, a, um, it's kind of a, a bimodal distribution. I can speak to my students and then the general young people I come across. The general young people, I think, are uh, feel overwhelmed. They feel a big burden and they just want to be distracted and have uh, good experiences and jobs and do something of meaning. Um, my students, paradoxically, um, are also different in their distribution. Um, but some of them are actually rooting for collapse. Why? Uh, and this may be a naive uh, wish on their behalf, because they deeply, deeply care about the natural world. And they think that the sooner we retreat from this level of overshoot, the better it will be for other species. I think there's some big assumptions that go along with that, that belief. But it's encouraging for me to see 
the ethos that was in the 1970s of the conservation movement and Earth Day and, and all that is still alive in young people. They feel a connection to the sacredness of the natural world, and they hold that much higher up in their priority list um, than the rest of us do on average. I think a lot of my students um, definitely do not feel the pull to get into the consumptive vortex of modern society with all kinds of gadgets and stuff. They're much more aligned to going camping for the weekend with some friends. Um, and I don't think they, any, many of them have a lot of money. And so they don't aspire to have shiny things to compare themselves to others. They compare themselves to their experiences and their ethics and the things that they're working on. So I'll, I'll stop there and let you <laughs> respond, yeah, but that's, this, that's my answer, short answer. Thank you. There's so much there. I mean, um, I love what you said about the boundaries of empathy. What are the, you know, um, you know, who, 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 or what is within your circle of concern. And I think in a way maturation is that capacity to expand your circle of concern open, you know, open channels in and channels out, you know, to more, to more than you, or you and yours. But the thing that I'm, I'm interested in is, and I, I, I know the mentality where in a way you can sort of cavalierly root for collapse because you just can't see any other way for this juggernaut to like stop. So I can understand, and I can understand too, being a young person without much stake in the, you know, consumptive world, being able to do that rooting. Um, uh, to be clear, I am not rooting for collapse, so we can no, talk no, about no. that if you like. But no, no, I, I am not either, because it's a be careful what you wish for sort of scenario. Well, it's also, as I say, it's cavalier, because. You know, what we're seeing right now, right now we're recording as the war in Ukraine is, is, is pressing on. And, and, you know, you could step back and you could say, of course, you know, wars over resources, that, those were like planted in our future and here they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, that's just evidence of, you know, a piece of the collapse that's happening. But if you have a heart, you can't stand it, you know. Um, so, yeah, but I wonder, I wonder about, about where you or I, you know, from our seats of influence, small seats of influence, you know, what guidance then would you had if you had your students in front of you now? What what would you be guiding them towards? Rather, you know, you're giving them this exhilarating sense of you sort of have control again because you can see what's going on, even though you have no control over it. So there's an exhilaration. But now, then what? It's an excellent question. I'm working on the answer to that right now. Um, this is recorded on March 30th. So in three weeks from today is Earth Day. And every year I do an Earth Day talk. And um, I'm at the end of the semester with my students. They have no idea what I'm going to recommend to them. And I ask them, what do you think I'm going to recommend? And it's like solar uh powered cars and don't eat meat and don't fly and all these things. And I recommend none of that. In fact, I have very few um, what to do 
recommendations. Most of my suggestions to young people are in the realm of how to be, how to be alive at this time. And um, I'm breaking that into three categories, coping, because you, first of all, we are not alive at normal times. We didn't evolve to handle this amount of frenetic stimulation, stress, anxiety, worry, um, and there, there are coping mechanisms uh, for how to deal with that. The second category is how to thrive during this time, how to think positively and uh, own your behaviors and sharpen the sword because you are the sword, um, how to be more effective in the things that you care about and how to live a meaningful life being alive at this time. And the third category is um, transcend, which is we are biological organisms and both individual and cultural evolution have brought us to this point. If you are a member of the species Homo sapiens, there's about a one in 10 chance that you're alive right now. And we have all through the metabolism and momentum of our ancestors and the uh, cultural information and passing the baton of, of values and technology and ethics and ideas have arrived at this point. But there is a, a momentum in our system that is destroying the ecosystems of Earth, and it also is leading us over a cliff. And on the other side of the cliff is a much smaller, simpler um, social organization and infrastructure. And so to transcend means we have to recognize who we are, how we got here, what we're doing, what we need. Um, what the path ahead looks like and kind of own all that. We're the first species in 300, well, we're the first of our species in 300,000 years to be able to figure this all out. And I don't know if you're a Seinfeld um, uh, devotee, but there was an episode, and I think Asher and, and Jason mentioned this on Crazy Town. There was an episode with George Costanza called Do the Opposite. Right. In some ways, a lot of the things that we need to do to break out of this cycle is to do the opposite of what our impulses would be. So there's a real like individual responsibility to, um, in yoga, I, I'm learning yoga right now. And one of the definitions of yoga is to um, control and direct the mind. Right now, our mind is, is like a moth is being pulled towards a flame. And that's because the, the light um, impacts the circumnavigation of a moth that's trying to figure out where it's going, where the angle of the moon, and it flies into a flame and gets zapped. We're doing the same thing with our technology and everything. And in aggregate, our reaching for the flame is creating a giant bonfire, uh, not so metaphorically on the planet. So we need to kind of understand that in order to transcend it. And so some of my students are living their lives completely differently as one example. And again, I'm not advocating this. I'm just showing you some of the emergent responses. They learn about our hunter-gatherer uh, um, instincts to, to get dopamine and unexpected reward. Um, and so they don't buy food. They go in Minneapolis to dumpsters and they dumpster dive to get uh, food, like a lot of it. And I find that 
weird, but they love it. They enjoy it because it gives them the excitement uh, and they don't spend money and they feel like they're living uh, kind of their own adventure. Now, of course, that's not scalable by, by definition. <laughs> Uh, if we had 8 billion people going into dumpsters, what would the food be going into dumpsters? But it's one example of they're not measuring their success by cultural metrics of the consensus trance where we're all looking at advertising and social media telling us how we should behave. Um, I don't know if you saw, uh, I'm sure you did see yesterday or Sunday, the Will Smith thing on the Oscars. Um mm like we're on the verge of nuclear war and everyone is tweeting about Chris Rock and Will Smith. But I think it, it has a deeper meaning to me that the veneer of our social conversation is unraveling a little bit. I mean, why is the Oscars so important anyways? And, and now the fact that they couldn't even get through that without some sort of a insult and fisticuffs or, or whatever, it, it shows me that the, the prevalent cultural trance, the conversation that we're all supposed to be interested in and believe in is fraying. And so what my biggest hope is for young people, um, and I'm not so hubristic to think that my students will be the leaders of this, uh, but they could be, I don't know, is that we need pilots and examples of people living differently, that are, they're living their lives not based on conspicuous consumption and having more than the other person, um, but that they have a higher standard of, of ethics and their own behavior, that they care about other species and other generations, and that we use empathy and kindness, um, not as a social statement, but as a, an example of who we are. And I, I personally, all of my work on finance and energy and metabolism suggests that our culture will not change until we are forced to. And by forced to, I expect uh, what I refer to as a great simplification, which is a musical chairs moment when our financial claims on reality can no longer be supported by the reality. And we're not just going to lose one chair. We're going to go from like 17 chairs down to 12 or 11 or something like that. It's going to be widespread poverty, a lot of chaos and dislocations. And so the reason I tell my students how to be coping, thriving, and, and um, transcending isn't to save the planet or the oceans or the future per se. It's to make them more resilient and more flexible for the future that I think is, is reasonably likely to come. And then in turn, the more people there are like that, the more they might act as rocks in the river. Because if you're in a community, you're on Whidbey Island. If there's three or five or 7% of people that define their success differently and they are psychologically strong and they don't need all this consumption and gadgets and, and uh, um, ostentatious displays of wealth, but they have skills and knowledge and networks those people in turn then act as a stabilizing force for the entire community when things get tough. So that's all I'm really trying to do is build those rocks in the river for the next decade when the water starts coming fast. And if you build enough of those rocks, um, 
not only are the rocks stable and they act as as anchors for other people in the community, but if you build enough of the rocks, you might actually redirect the water in some uh, emergent uh, direction that we can't yet imagine. You are a brother of another mother. That's you just, um, you know, we came into the world singing the same song and now we're just harmonizing really because it's, it's very much what I'm seeing. Um, and what I see just to ask myself my own question, um, what I see, there's a subculture in the fire, financial independence, retire early. There's a subculture in that culture, which is the dominant note is, is pretty much a, a techie, you know, really super smart tech people figuring out the system and making it work to their advantage, which not a bad thing to do. Um, but there's a subculture that is really questioning what is wealth, what is money, what is success, you know, that really, and really questioning, you know, like we've gotten like, very smart at like manipulating the capitalist system to our, you know, with our own sort of spin of sufficiency, we've gotten good at that, but the system is wrong. And how do we, how do we even build a secure future financially in an insecure world? So they're asking really right questions that I, I love being around it. And what I see part of the migration I see there is, um, is this understanding that there are multiple forms of capital, you know, that we've been mesmerized by money as, you know, the intermediary to meet all needs, you know, for entertainment, for love, da, 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 da. And, and so, you know, it's, it's actually in the permaculture teaching this, like somebody articulated eight forms of capital, you know, the things that, you know, the people, your networks, et cetera. Um, and then there is, you know, there are permaculture teachers who are incorporating this teaching, like, that, that, that money is like an energy that flows through a system like, you know, sunlight, you know. So people are learning to unhook, I feel, I see, unhook from money as the means, whether or not they're, you know, they get the whole, how far down the tubes we are. They're, they're, there's a different empowerment and it's 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 a little bit like the the hunt of the dumpster diving, and I, I very much appreciate that. I've done that myself. Um, and you know, we know that half the people in the world are are dumpster diving on a daily basis. I mean, mm -hmm. that's already this collapse that people, you know, mostly white people associated with us are facing is already happening elsewhere. So I, I see that creativity. I agree with this idea of rocks in a river, and right now in my community, um, our little city council constituted a climate crisis action committee. So we're, the, the rocks in the river, the people I'm working with are really, really are that my community's rocks in the river, some of them, a few of them, you know, but there's lots more rocks in the river. And we're trying to think, how does a whole town adapt? I mean, before, <laughs> before the water has actually taken the first street. <sighs> I've tried this in my own community and um, I don't think it's possible. I think 80% of people will never agree with limits to growth, um, resource depletion, ecological overshoot. They, they just won't. So you have to talk to the people that are ready to listen. And I think the story not only is so cognitively, uh, emotionally difficult to get your, um, your head around, but paradoxically, at this 11th hour, we're going to be doing social things 
and monetary things and technological things that make the curve look like this before it bends. So these things um, are, are going to feel, you know, the S and P is at 4,600 today. It doesn't give the emotional signal to people that it's effectively a musical chairs Ponzi right. situation that when we sell stocks, bonds, commodities, everything else, we have to, translate them into things that actually require energy and resources. And now with China, uh, with Russia, potentially China and India, um, the whole global commodity system um, has moved into a phase shift between the relationship between monetary markers of reality and the biophysical underpinnings of reality. So I don't think communities are going to change ahead of time en masse but what can change is the networks and the relationships in the communities. Mm, mm. And so no matter what future happens, if there are networks and social capital built up, even with five to 10% of the citizens in a community, then you just have much, much more leverage to what's coming. Alice and Bill and Kevin and Diane and I talked about this three years ago let me call Alice. She knows how to do this. Let me call Bill. He knows the mayor. Um, and just the social networks, given some moderate infrastructure and, and resources are going to be the most important thing that we uh, have in communities, exactly. in my opinion. Yeah. And it's, 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 um, it's the climate conversations and it's not the conversation about, did you know how bad it is and what are you willing to do now that you know how bad it is? That's not the conversation. The yeah. conversation is, a, is more of a relational one. It could even be with, here's some things that I notice in our community that I'm concerned about. I wonder if you're concerned about it as well. What are you doing in relation right. to that? You know, and, and here's what I'm doing in relation to it. And like, you know, and then um, would you like to do something together? You know, like it's, yeah. It's, it's a, but it's, it's not just a single conversation. It's like a sustained conversation. A community is I, a conversation in a way, you know? At my core, I'm an environmentalist in that what I care the most about is living ecosystems and other species after I die. Mm -hmm. um, but having said that, I'm upset by a lot of the narratives in the current environmental movement that just cast blame and we're screwed because XYZ corporations or whatever. And it's, it's like a blame and a guilt. And I think we just need to have a different destination and go there in a positive way. Like we're in a tough spot. We need to roll our sleeves up and start living differently, planning differently in relationship differently and it's got to be a more proactive message because the doom and gloom and blame is appealing to like the little fear module in our amygdala, but it only goes so far. It doesn't want uh, to have ownership in a community and a movement and an effort. And I don't know how to do those things, but I, I feel like the whole, how are we going to live in the future has to be more love-based and um, uh, community based than fear-based because fear-based will eventually um, move up the hierarchy to guns, gold, and canned goods and things like that. And I don't think that is going to be that pro-social of an outcome. I love what you said about basically it's going to be the love. 
it's going, it's not like, oh, this isn't our, our opportunity to love. This is our love training. Like, you know, reframing this as a love training. No, that's too superficial. It is going to be the, the, the sincere quality of a heart of our hearts, knowing that we're in trouble together. We can, we can spend another, you know, decade blaming each other, but that's not going to help at all. Um, I want to hear what you have to say, because maybe you see something I don't. As, as, as one of the 13 grandmothers said when I heard at her conference, she just kept repeating it. She says, we're all in a leaky canoe, canoe and we've all got a paddle. And so I think that's the thing is, and the, the, the paddle is our skills and da, 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 but our paddle is also love. Having said that, I expect given the distribution of personalities in our culture, in our species, there's going to be a lot of hate as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that um, we just need to kumbaya our way out of this. But what I am saying is we have to lead with some sort of positive destination where people want to be affiliated with it, as opposed to just being afraid to leave their house and then, uh, you know, going insular and not creating community. I think the biggest thing we can do now is have conversations. Like you said, agree or disagree. We need facilitators, cultural facilitators that just build relationships and they don't have to be strong relationships. Mm -hmm. But I think the the most important thing that I think is I do not know what's going to happen in the future. I'm quite sure about what won't happen in the future, but I don't know what will. And, and so the more people that we have that can kind of squint and see what the distant horizon kind of looks like, which is we're probably at a minimum going to have to use 30% less as a culture in material throughput uh, in the coming 10 years or so. Um, that doesn't have to be a disaster. If that alone happened, we would still be one of the richest material generations in the history of our species. It's the loss aversion from here down to here. That's what we're worried about. And the nonlinear dynamics of, of the, the journey to get to that point. But I have trained myself. And I think some of my students have adopted this to look at this all as a little bit of an adventure that you have a role to play and you're, you know, thumbing a ride in the direction of a better culture, a better destination. And rather than say, oh, how can I take advantage of what's coming and invest in the right things to shift a little bit of, of your um, direction and your thinking into, okay, here's where I live. This is my situation on the island I live in or in the state that I live in. How can I help? What would be the one or two or three things that I'm good at. And I think in a, in a scenario like that, where we're in kind of a rolling great depression, um, how can I help? Um, because helping a, a group of humans of 30 or a hundred humans and being a valued part of that community is one of the strongest rewards that we could get uh, in our, in our past, irrespective of monetary uh, electrons in the bank of how much we have, et cetera. So there are no easy answers. Um, I'm pretty confident that the um, kicking the can of our debts that we've accumulated over the last 50 years using more debt is got a expiration date in the next decade. And so my antidote to that for young people and uh, not young people is um, 
training your mind and becoming okay with less material consumption and building social networks, building social capital and skills and having a little bit of a love-based, adventure-based outlook on the future instead of fear-based. I think that's great. And and, uh, there's an awful lot of young people I know who are up for that journey. You know, I mean, it's almost like the being 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 robbed of the opportunity to go on the old journey of you know marriage family house yard blah being robbed of that and you know going through the big jip this is not you know it's like unfair um i think there's people who are being getting up for it and and i think it's a beautiful message and i really there there are people the question is how do we scale it because um, you know, you're right. We have very small positions, small seats of influence. Um, and it's being countervailed by the entire university system, graduate high school and come and pay a hundred thousand dollars for this education that half of it is really useful. And the other half is trivia that mattered to the last 50 years. And you're gonna have to go in debt to do it. I mean, our whole education model needs to change to totally. fit to fit what future is likely coming, but the education system, the university system, is a miniature superorganism seeking money and energy and influence and access. And it's the momentum of that is really hard to change. Um, I think it it has to change though because the the value proposition of the millions or tens of millions of young people that are going to college every year isn't what it was when you and I went to college. Yeah, no. So uh, here's where I have some undue um, enthusiasm, maybe, or due enthusiasm for, for the, the people in this socially conscious fire um, um, subgroup, because when we started talking about the big quit, you know, and I asked them, you know, because here are people who are like getting themselves in position to not have to go to, you know, a nine to five job and work for somebody else, except it's not nine to five anymore. It's like 24 <laughs> seven, but anyway, you know, and basically I asked them, you know, what do you think is behind this? You know, what's happening? And of course it's, some of it is that people were close enough to retirement that they could just not go back. But when it boiled down to it was the game is not worth the candle. Mm-hmm. Game is not worth the candle. I am not getting the, the guys at the top are making out like bandits and they're not even offering me a penny more. And it's, it's, it's in a way it's beneath me. They're figuring out how to survive. You know, a lot of them are, are very much doing something that I think is, it's an interim strategy and it doesn't have a lot of nobility to it, but it, it's called geo arbitrage. You know, they're just like, I have enough money in order to be able to live someplace that's extraordinarily cheap on very little. And I'm going to do that. You know, they they put all their possessions in a backpack and they become nomads. They're nomads, um, whether they're digital nomads or not. So, and I think there's going to be a lot of that. Like, I think van life is like exploding. People are beginning to see, okay, I'm not sure it's healthy or unhealthy, but I think the piece of it that is healthy is that people are getting empowered in relationship with the crashing of the old story. And that's what I like. Until gasoline is five or ten dollars a gallon, of then course. that might change the van life a little bit. But of course, of course, of course, it's sort of like you that can still have that- a van life. You just don't move the van exactly, or or you get a you get a horse, you know, or you. 
We have very few horses relative to the <laughs> 1920s. We have a tiny fraction of the that's, viable breeding stock that we did a hundred years ago. Totally. No, I, I, that, that was flippant, but um, it's like when I, 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 I have three horses and um, they're basically giant compost machines. We buy <laughs> food for them. They poop it out. They, uh, the manure we put on the gardens <laughs> and I am like a treat dispenser. They have zero respect <laughs> for me. They see me and they expect a carrot or something. Other than that, they just ignore me. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of like when I when I did my ten mile diet on Whidbey Island, trying to see if I could live with you know eat within ten miles of my home. And um, you know, I would tell people about the experiment. You know, like this ferry stops running, the bridge goes down. You know, da da da. How are we going to eat? They said it's no problem. You know, because we have a lot. My town is famous for an infestation of bunnies. We'll eat the bunnies. I said, yeah, that's a day. Yeah, right. People <laughs> and then we'll eat the deer. Well, that's another day. That's and one of the things they don't teach us in college. I mean, <laughs> uh, or high school, where our food comes from. Most people think it comes from the, exactly. you know, the Piggly Wiggly or the Safeway <laughs> or whatever you have out there. Yeah, let me get back to one thing you said at the very beginning, just so I'm clear on that. Um, I think collapse is definitely possible. Anyone paying attention has to realize that collapse in all its uh, manifestations is possible. And it's happening in places right now. Ukraine is enduring collapse, Syria and other places, Bangladesh, um, various stages. But I don't think collapse in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years is certain. It's certainly a possibility. But I think we have um, this cultural conversation around it that it's binary. It's either a collapse or not a collapse. And I think there are gradations to it. And the most likely scenario is not a collapse, but a muddling through where we peak and then decline and have a, another small peak and kind of this um, lower peaks in growth and humans are going to figure shit out along the way. Um, I think that's more likely than a collapse. Um, but I, that's why I think when you prepare about the future, it's difficult to even have these conversations because people can't hold multiple scenarios in their head too easily, which is why how to be as a recommendation, I think fits all these scenarios um, where you are less reliant on a high income, high mobility uh, um, situation and you get your evolutionary neurotransmitters matching the emotional states of our ancestors in ways that require less material throughput and money. And you also have to inject in there some part of your life and routine to be one of, that has deep meaning to you. And I think if that's the recipe or the advice uh, for young people, I think there's a, a million ways to follow that path, even despite the, the storm clouds on our cultural horizon. Right. I, I, there's like about three paths that I could take off right on there. I mean, you know, the binary mind, I think that is, you know, being able to ha have more than two options for anything. It, it's, it's a social insanity. I mean, you know, black and white, either or thinking is one of the definitions of insanity, you know, that you, your mind has gone, you know, rigid, 
That's hmm. you know, I didn't cognitive, know that. cognitive behavioral therapy. One of the one of the, the first cognitive mistakes they teach you is black and white thinking. It's huh. all one way or it's all another. I just did a whole um, thing on what could possibly go right. A little talk on on bi- the binary mind. That hmm. that that that's one of the things that hopefully is going to start cracking open. But the binary mind is easier for people. It, it uses less energy and less cognitive bandwidth. It's easier to have things in black and white, but the truth and the nuance and the meaning and probably the creative directions are in the middle that are not black and white. Well, I mean, or you could say that it's, um, you know, it's, it's the maturation of the mind, you know, it's, it's like, um, uh, fight or flight, these sorts of things that we just need to be, we, we need to be able to interrogate the consequences of our black and white thinking and, and start to link up the, res- the effects with the, co- the, the proper causes that my neighbor, you know, is not the cause of my problem. The cause of my problem is that I couldn't see another solution other than the one that's bothering him. You know? So it's, um, it, I think that that you know that capacity to link your behavior to the effects in your life rather than somebody else's behavior. Not that you're to nobody's to blame. It's just being able to start to see that so that you can see this is Buddhism. You can start to see that the the suffering that you're bringing upon yourself by the way you engage in the way your mind engages with interpreting the the immense input of the world in front of us. I agree with that. And I think what you call maturity of thinking, um, we have a ticking clock on this cultural transition. And as things get more chaotic, the default of blaming the neighbor for your situation is going to escalate. So I think building personal flexibility and getting to know your neighbors. Um, you don't have to agree with them. You might politically totally disagree with them, but find things that you do agree. So you have a detente neutral, totally. uh, real relationship with lots of people is probably one of the best recommendations I could give. And it's hard. I live in the country and I, um, go for bike rides, not in the winter. I don't, but now it's approaching spring and I try to stop at one person's house every time, if, especially if they're working in the yard, I just stop and introduce myself. And so I've met like 150 people in the last two summers by doing that. And I live in a rural County, uh, but I feel good about that. I I'm not their best friends, but I've right. created a little bit of a tether back to the way our ancestors live because we're so insulated and rich living in our houses where we just click on Amazon. And the next day there's stuff arrives at our doorstep. <laughs> exactly. We are so freaking spoiled with that model. That model will so... not last. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it's really, so then, you know, another part of the um, thriving is gratitude. Oh totally. my God. How amazing it is to be alive now, despite all the chaos. So to every day be thankful for the experiences and and abilities that we have, I can get on my computer and find the answer to any question my mind can imagine uh, within a few minutes. I mean, we have the library of all human knowledge ever at our fingertips. Mm. And we just take it for granted, you know? 
Wow. Well, so I think I'd like to stop us on the note of gratitude. You know, people used to ask me, you know, do you have a tip for like reducing my consumption? I said, yeah, gratitude. The more, the more grateful you are for what is and what you have, the less able you are. You just, you can't, you can't even get beyond putting on your shoes and gratitude for your shoes, you know, so much less getting the next pair. So I think gratitude is one of those um, pro-social, pro-unraveling skills among the many that you shared with us. And I really, really, really thank you because I, I have so many people in mind that I am excited that they will be able to hear this particular episode. I'm grateful that our paths cross and that we've become friends. Me too. Me too. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.